Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to a bonus episode of the TLS podcast. In this week's paper, we're featuring an extract from Anne Enright's new novel, Actress. We thought we'd offer you the chance to hear it read beautifully by the author herself. So here it is, Anne Enright reading from Actress, as featured in this week's TLS, in print and online. People ask me, what was she like? And I try to figure out if they mean, as a normal person, what was she like in her slippers eating toast and marmalade? Or what was she like as a mother? Or what was she like as an actress? We did not use the word star. Mostly, though, they mean what was she like before she went crazy? As though their own mother might turn overnight like a bottle of milk left out of the fridge. Or they might themselves be secretly askew. Something happens as they talk to me. I'm used to it now. It works in them slowly. A growing wonder, as though recognising an old flame after many years. You have her eyes, they say. People loved her. Strangers, I mean. I saw them looking at her and nodding, though they failed to hear a single word she said. And yes, I have her eyes. At least I have the same colour eyes as my mother, a hazel that in her case people like to call green. Indeed, whole paragraphs were penned about bog and field when journalists looked into my mother's eyes. And we have the same way of blinking, slow and fond, as though thinking of something very beautiful. I know this because she taught me how to do it. Think about cherry blossom, she said, drifting on the wind. And sometimes I do. Such were the gifts I got from Catherine O'Dell, star of stage and screen. How are you, O mother of mine? Never better, she used to say. And the blossoms drifted by the tree load when she looked at me. There was a man in the kitchen in Dartmouth Square, where everything important in my life seems to have happened, who knew someone who had slept with Marilyn and never washed, he said. Some evening in my childhood, I came down the stairs to hear this news and he was such a nice old man It's stained me ever since. So when people ask, what was she like? I have an urge to say, pretty clean, actually. And then to add, I mean, by the standards of the day. So all right, here she is, Catherine O'Dell, making her breakfast, requiring her breakfast from the fridge and the cupboards, some of which delight her and some of which let her down. Where is it? Where is it? Here it is. Yes, the marmalade. 
The sun is coming through the window. The smoke from her cigarette rises and twists in an elegant double strand. What can I say? When she ate toast and marmalade, she was like anyone else eating toast and marmalade. Though the line between lip and skin, whatever that is called, is very precise, even when you're not seeing it on a cinema screen, 12 feet long. So here she is eating toast. She works fast. She holds the slice of toast to her mouth, bites and chews, then bites again, swallows. She does this maybe three or four times, sets the thing back on the plate. She takes it up for one more bite, leaves it down, after which there's a little tug of love which the toast loses, a little wavy over thing she does with her hand, a shimmy of rejection or desire. No, she will not have any more toast. She picks up the phone receiver and dials. Everything was marvellous when she was on this phone, a beige thing on the kitchen wall with a long clapped-out curly cord that you had to duck under as she paced and smoked, saying, marvellous, by giving me the wink, indicating our coffee or a glass of wine that was out of reach with a pointed finger and a rolling hand. Just marvellous, she might say. Or she talks to me, a girl of eight or nine sitting at the table in a pink cotton dress brought back from America. She involves the dog who's waiting under the table like a dog in the movies for scraps and crumbs. Mostly, she speaks to the ceiling at the place where it meets the wall. Her eyes rove along this line as though looking for ideas up there or for justice. Yes, this is what she wants. She tucks her face down quickly to light another cigarette. She exhales. The toast is now fully ignored. The toast is dead to her now. The chair is pushed back, the cigarette stubbed out on the actual plate, after which she gets up and walks away. Someone else will dispose of all that because I think I mentioned that my mother was a star, not just on stage or on the screen, but at the breakfast table also. My mother, Catherine O'Dell, was a star. An hour or so later, she's back in the kitchen saying, God damn it, God damn it, she's banging the dishes around. She might throw the toast out through the open window or crack the plate on the edge of the sink because Kitty is not around. Kitty is shopping for dinner. She's on a day off nursing her cancerous sister. Kitty is never there when you want her, though she is there all the time. And when she arrives, laden or sad, the plate was an accident and Kitty is a treasure who must be courted and spoiled. Our housekeeper Kitty had a daily in to clean. She had a fancy carpet sweeper and one of the first dishwashers in the country. And came in in time for my 21st birthday. There was even a photograph. My mother opening the door in a shock of steam while Kitty in the background sticks to her own thoughts and the Belfast sink. My mother put me into a dress for the occasion. We have moved on from the pink American cottons through three-button pinafores and drop-waisted short dresses over skinny, raw knees. I am 21. My arms are soft and a mottled white. I'm too tall for my birthday. I sport a swamp green and sickish pink thing with tull pom-poms on a long tull skirt. My mother, there she is, holding the birthday cake high, wears black. In front of her is a crowd of people, and also me. There is something overdetermined about the faces in this second photograph. I look at them over the years, their cheeks blotched, their eyes fixed, and I wonder what they feel. Star-struck. You could look at those people for quite a while. Their eyes watch her from behind a mask of delight, and it's not about attraction, this look, 
It's more about disaster. There's a painful stretch to some of the smiles that is envy about to happen, especially the women. There's no denying this. My mother made women especially difficult to themselves. In the middle of it all is my own face at 21, dreading the limelight and sweetened at the same time by her attention. The flames on the cake burn small and straight. I'm held in my mother's gaze while all around us are the fervent and the savage. Or maybe it's just the drink made them look that way. All around us are the faces of the crowd. It was a terrible party, at least for me. I had graduated that summer and most of my college friends were already scattered. A couple of girls from school showed up too early in borrowed dresses, made uncertain, I thought, by all the junk in the house, but more probably by its size. They sat in the upstairs living room, a place furnished one way or another from the stages of Dublin, so you were always sitting in character. You were just not sure which one. A button-back sofa in navy velvet, a carved wooden chair fit for a Borgia, a little painted Scandinavian stool. We perched on these discarded stories and offered our own small tales of woe, unreliable boyfriends, backstabbing girlfriends, mothers who were a complete nightmare. At least my school friends talked about their mothers. I have always been in this respect properly shy. My efforts that night undone a little by the sound of her in the kitchen being well known as the whiskey sank and the noise level rose. It was hard to find a tone. A bunch of college drama types trailed in after ten and sat around. Someone turned the lights down and the music up and Melanie from school ended up snogging the president of Dramsock beside the bathroom door because that also happened in the late summer of 1973. You got waylaid. You went out to do your hair and ended up in a rummaging heap stuck to the wall. Sometime towards midnight, there were arrivals from the show at the gate who gathered round the upright piano and the party settled down into singing and drinking like many another Saturday night in Dartmouth Square. My mother's crowd drifted up to the living room to be ignored by my own friends for being old. Or maybe all men were old in those days, with their baggy sports jackets and packets of fags. There was no difference between 25 and 45. Everyone wore a tie. Over the years, my mother entertained in her big old kitchen a shifting band of big drinking men. All of them good company, some well known. They came to her for refuge, for conversation and carelessness and the kind of approval that no thinking man in those days could expect in his own home. They were the men who charmed my childhood. They palmed me pound notes recited Yeats before bed, sat me on their knees for teasing or various kinds of complicity. Do you see that one over there? He sang for the Pope. I loved some of them. And some of them, as a small revenge on my mother, perhaps, were truly fond of me. But I didn't love them any more. I mean, they did not excite me at 21. Perhaps they were not as glamorous a bunch as they used to be. Various types a few ravenous wives. The girls who trailed along were either tourists, you could tell by the bonny in sweaters, or too clever and far too drunk. 
The men on whom they set their crocheted caps were theatre types, intellectuals, musicians, writers. They all wrote one way or the other. And they were all, at least to themselves, quite important. There was talk of jobs in the Irish Times or out in UCD. Are you out in UCD? A place that was exactly two miles down the road. Huey Snell was out in Montrose, which meant he worked in television. And none of them, it goes without saying, were out in any other way. They took their cue from Niall Duggan, a courtly type who spoke in puns, inversions, machia Irish and sick transit, sonorous brief bursts of Latin, which always triggered heavy ascent. Carpe, yes, carpe indeed. It was a high style of bullshit, quite formal, with no jokes about sex, no disrespecting women, or no mentioning women, now I come to think about it. Except face to face, when he was often obscene. Hard to explain. Everything was a reference. Silent O'Boyle, for example, was named for the song by Thomas Moore and some incident at the urinals in the palace bar. Silent O'Boyle, be the roar of thy waters. It was all both base and weirdly ennobled and even their lechery was overstyled. Silent O'Boyle talked to my right breast on the wonders of Baudelaire before switching, in case it felt excluded perhaps, to the left for a teasing aperçu about the young Rambo. Then Duggan himself asking me, would you ever get up on that character from Faulkner? What about Salinger? You would. You'd shag that miserable streak of ennui and the course of American letters, don't argue with me now, would be permanently changed. You'd save his life and wreck the book. That's the problem, you see. There's the perfidy. When I was in first year, Duggan, who was, of course, one of my lecturers out in UCD, promised me first class honours in exchange for my virginity. And my mother said she would never settle for less than all your worldly goods, Niall. And then leave the child alone. They drank until their eyes set, like jelly almost, blind to all of their impossibilities. At least, that is how I thought of it at 21, when I did not drink because I didn't like the taste. And these men could look at me any way they liked because they were so old. And I was already in love with you. At the given moment, her friend Huey Snell sang, as he always did, in a high, trapped tenor. When other lips and other hearts their tales of love shall tell. He sort of stooped over it, his mouth working around the vowel sounds, so they came out wonderfully squeezed. In such a moment I but ask that you'll remember me. It was an aria from the Bohemian Girl that was, and we were tired knowing this, a great favourite of the young Jimmy Joyce. Huey claimed to be hopelessly in love with my mother and people allowed him that because he was so clearly homosexual. He put all this tormentedness into the song, which was a lovely thing, and his voice brought the vast night into the room. Even the college types went still. I leant against the wall with tears in my eyes and I thought about you off interrailing into the early autumn with your English Olivia. I wondered where you were, Pisa or Verona or Bratislava. You had left me this time for good. Our love was impossible, you said. Or no, you just needed a holiday and Olivia was the perfect person for that. There was nothing wrong with Olivia. He never did tell me how it all went. 
There were no anecdotes about squalid train carriages or Italian pensions with pink frilly lampshades. And you never told me what she was like in bed, though I did keep asking. I thought there was some trick to all that. You just smiled and said, not like you. Huey Snell brought the last note through pursed lips and lifted his eyebrows a little as though surprised by the length of it. There was applause, after which the piano player segued into a simple melody picked out on the high notes, a call that was answered by a voice on the stairs. We turned towards the door and saw a flurry of yellow light followed by the bright flames of a birthday cake that was carried into the room by my mother She walked towards me, her pace scooping and slow. She processed. And the song she had chosen to sing was that glorious old chestnut, Que Sera Sera. You must know that by this time she rarely sang and certainly never on stage. I'm too old, she said, remembering perhaps some unrepeatable perfection that brought the house to its feet in London or New York or Dublin town. My goodness, my mother had a voice that arrived from everywhere. It slipped out of her mouth and then came back at you from the far corner. Catherine O'Dell did not sing so much as pull the song out of the walls. She called it into being and the air was charged with sound. After which, don't blow them out yet. We leaned in for the photograph. An official snapper brought by the social diarist from the evening press. Mama gave the lens her back and a three-quarter profile. It was all staged. There was no doubt the cake was timed, the walk, the snap. I know that. And I also know that my mother sang that night for me alone. We all did happy birthday then and I blew the candles out. The cake was from the Tea Time Express and stuffed with cream. Now that I look at the photograph, I see that my own dress is actually lovely. This fright of drab tull, it made me look pale and interesting. And my mother's dress is a complete classic. Wide skirt, narrow bodice, three-quarter sleeves. It has a fold-over white satin boat neck that turned, as she angled herself away from the camera, into a reverse collar, descending in two white Puritan points down below her shoulder blades. Lots of bare skin. Early 1950s? At a guess? Maybe Dior. The headline reads, Catherine O'Dell at home. And there's a second smaller picture of my mother with the new dishwasher, one of the first in Ireland, apparently, with a bright look in her face that says, I have no idea how to work this thing. Catherine O'Dell enjoys her newly modernised kitchen in Dublin's elegant Dartmouth Square. I have so few clippings and, you know, I miss my mother every day, but I still can't read the damn things. They are unreadable. This one, which I treasure, was written by a poisonous little soak you saw about town, wearing a tux and a bow tie. He had a car and a driver and middle class women made actual squeaking sounds when he walked into their parties and occasions. Then he'd go back to Berkey at three in the morning and sit like Rodin's thinker before producing, for example, this Home from her latest triumph on Broadway, Catherine O'Dell took time this week to talk to our diarist, Terry O'Sullivan, about matters theatrical and domestic. She recently was in receipt of a dishwashing machine, the first in the country, at least I think it might be. She got the idea in America, where such amenities are quite the norm, or so says the globe-trotting muse of writers as various as Samuel Beckett and Arthur Coppett. Does Hollywood call? 
more faintly these days. There is nothing to compete for me with the thrill of the live stage. Beneath the cake picture, he writes, Coming of age. A star-studded attendance for daughter Carmel's birthday party, including Christopher Casanova, fresh from his performance at the gate, fellow actor Huey Snell, movie impresario Boyd O'Neill, architect Douglas Kelly, his wife Jenny and daughter Moira, who has just graduated with honours from UCD. Moira now plans to work in the travel industry. Moira is, of course, the prettiest girl there. She didn't go into the travel industry. She got married and moved to Monkstown. The journalist also gets my name wrong at my own birthday party. I am not called Carmel, wherever that came from. My name is Nora Fitzmaurice. Anne Enright reading actress. The novel is published by Jonathan Cape this month with the audiobook, which this was a clip from, produced by Penguin. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.